Hey, good morning, and welcome to The Story's online service. I'm Pastor Eric. I'm the lead pastor here at The Story, and whether you've been with us from the very beginning, five-plus years ago, or whether you're brand new today, I'm so glad you're here. And wherever you are, you know, this is our 19th Sunday in a row of online-only worship. Uh, it doesn't get any easier. I miss your faces more and more. It's been more than one-third of the year, and, uh, and so I can't wait until we can be together in person again. Until then... We're going to make the most of this season, and I'm so proud of all of our leaders, both staff and, and unpaid staff, volunteers, that have put their heads together and poured their hearts into so many different innovative ways for us to stay connected. Many of you are struggling through this. Some of you, it's just like the hardest thing in the world to sit at home and watch worship on your computer screen or TV, and I get it. I'm ADD as, as much as anyone else, and so I understand what a struggle it can be. We want to keep you connected. And so if you haven't checked out, for example, um, The Story at Home, which is a podcast that uh, we're putting three episodes out every week now. Pastor Giovanna has taken the reins on it. It's an awesome resource to keep you grounded, to inspire you, to lead your household to follow Jesus. Be sure to check out The Story at Home wherever you find podcasts. Also, for the next two Wednesday nights, we've got some very special worship opportunities with The Story Worship Band, as well as two very gifted speakers who are going to be sharing a message with us from the book of Job for the next two Wednesday nights, seven o'clock this Wednesday and next. Be sure to check that out. I can't wait to be a part of it. And then um, finally, I want to thank everybody. I want to thank everybody that supports the stories, mission, and ministries with your money. I know it's a tight and difficult season that we're in right now. All around, there's a lot of anxiety and, and a lot of um, scarcity, and we're afraid. And the fact that you're continuing to step up and support all that's going on here at the story truly means the world to me. It means the world to us. And so thank you if you've already made that decision. If you've never supported the story financially, that's okay. Don't go away. You still belong here. It's totally fine. I understand there's a lot that goes into deciding to invest in a church, especially if it's not your church yet. But if you're so inclined and feel led by the Spirit to support the story um, with your money today, we're so grateful. If you would visit thestory.church donate. It's a super easy process, very safe to do online. Um, and I want to thank you in advance for your investment in all the good stuff that's going on here at The Story. We are continuing a series now. That's what I'm doing over here. If you missed last week, I'm over here amidst all these headlines and newspapers because we're talking about culture wars for five weeks. This is the second week. And um, we're talking about how to make peace. This is all based on Jesus's promise that when you're a peacemaker, you're blessed by God and you'll be called a, ch a child of God when you're a peacemaker. So we're talking about how to become peacemakers in this contentious and ever more divided culture that we're in. Some people, I think, might, might believe that these culture wars are new, that it all started, you know, when Trump got elected or something. A lot of young folks think that especially. I just want you to know these culture wars have been going on a while. Now, they have been getting worse, and I'll say more about why in a minute. But my whole life, I feel like I've been a part of culture wars. I mean, from my childhood. Look, the first 20 years of my life, I was on the, the, the political and religious right uh, in these culture wars. I, I was raised in the Bible Belt, and I was raised to believe certain things, you know. And so I, I thought that my job was to react against liberals who took God out of schools. So they, I don't know when it happened, but when I was a kid, my friends and I were all told that that somebody, some liberals in Washington, made God leave the school and took prayer out. 
And it didn't occur to me to question that. Like, how do you take God out of school? Like, shouldn't we be praying whether or not, you know, the vice principal's reading some rote prayer over the loudspeaker on Thursday morning? Like, anyway, <laughs> that was my side of the battle at the time. And we did all kinds of things to signal our virtue to each other, right? We wanted to make sure everybody knew what side of the fight we were on. And so uh, we put metal fish on the back of our mom's minivan, and we gathered around a flagpole once a year at 7 a.m. to, to show the whole school uh, who we were. And, and so uh, we wanted to make that, that clear. Around the age of 20, I converted. I converted away from that Bible Belt religious worldview into a different worldview. People do this all the time. You've probably had some conversions in your life. I converted uh, to more of a secular humanism, right, where, where I was taught, and, and my friends and I were told, and from my 20s, uh, age of 20 to 33, really that, that Christians are the problem, and really that white Christian men are the problem. And I didn't want to be part of the problem. I was this progressive, rebellious spirit. I wanted to be part of the solution. And so my friends and I, we started doing things that you do when you're on the left side of these kinds of culture wars. And so we protested and we, we said some scathing things and arguments and insults. And we wrote papers and we posted on MySpace about all these mean Christians, <laughs> all this craziness. Anyway, that's, that's how we fought that side. And so these culture wars have been going on for a while, but they are escalating now. And so two things have happened in the last few years, 10 plus years, that have caused this escalation. First, the onset of social media that has taken over our lives, obviously huge deal that has, um, that has escalated these culture wars. And the other thing is, uh, you know, the 24-hour uh, news cycle. That can't be denied either. These news networks that have to fill their time, they want us angry, they want us anxious, they want us hateful, and pointing fingers at other people, right? Clearly, that is what's going on. And so what's happened as these two forces have taken hold is that what used to be sort of regional, occasional skirmishes have become all-out, nonstop, perpetual global war. And it's tearing us apart. It's tearing us apart. Internally, it's dividing us. In our churches, in our families, denominations, our culture, our country, it's all being ripped apart at the seams by what we call culture wars because we're all digging in. And so these modern cultural warfare tactics are all very deliberate and they're very they're concrete. There are six that I identified, six sort of traits that define modern cultural warfare. And these apply to any side of the aisle in any issue. So I'm not picking on one particular side, right? So the first one is defined talking points, well-defined talking points. You're told what to say. You are told, you get the idea about what is acceptable to say and what's not. You kind of get these company lines. Nobody questions them. You never sort of raise any doubts about them. You just say them. And so something like liberals took prayer out of schools or white Christian men are, are the problem. That kind of thing you repeat again and again to prove who you are. The next are sort of the purity tests that are involved in every culture war. Purity tests can mean anything from see you at the pole or staying a virgin or uh, on the left, it could be, you know, anything from, hey, post a black square on your Instagram or, or say, you know, all women, believe all women on Twitter or wh whatever kind of mantra there is, you say it publicly to prove who you are. You're one of us. It's virtue signaling again. The third trait of modern uh, warfare is the self-righteous indignation. It's the finger pointing. They're the problem. They're the bad guys. We're the good guys. We're virtuous. 
their evil. And so this is kind of um, what you would say if you're uh, me when, in my teens, right? No wonder the schools have, have not performed. No wonder things have really gone to hell at the schools. They kicked God out. And the problem with this line of thinking, other than just the sheer toxicity of it, is you hope bad things will happen. You hope for the worst so you can be right. You know, and that is so toxic, and, and yet we find ourselves in that place all the time, politically and socially in these battles we get ourselves in. Fourth, uh, bias-confirming um, news sources or bias-confirming echo chambers. So any news source or commentator, article, whatever, who doesn't agree with your preconceived conclusion <laughs> is wrong. Fake news. Don't listen to them. Don't even open your mind to them. They're dangerous. And this is true on both sides. On the one side, that's where you get to the point, like Fox News is the only place to get real news. On the other side, it's like Rachel Maddow really tells it like it is. Like everybody's dug in. And these people think these people are crazy for listening to Rachel Maddow. These people think this is, it's all a universal truth that the problem is on the other side. And that's where the sin is. It's not with us. There's never any self-analysis or repentance. You see this happening all the time. Fifth is outraged victim status. Everyone wants to claim victimhood and the most aggrieved kind of victimhood possible because in our cultural warfare, victimhood means power. And so, you know, if you can't, as a Christian growing up, claim that they took prayer out of schools, next they're coming for our heads, y'all. It's like this big logical leap, but, but if, you can, if you can claim martyr status, then you've got a bigger platform to stand on. You've got more authority somehow in our culture. And that happens again on both sides of the aisle. And, and finally, there's this demonization of the other. This is what we call cancel culture, right? And in some ways in America, I trace what we call cancel culture back today to, to some parts of Christianity. It can't be denied. I've watched Christians canceling people since I was a kid. They canceled Rob Bell. They canceled Ellen DeGeneres. They canceled the purple Teletubby. Like I watched growing up cancellation happening. And now what's happening is the left has perfected it. Perfected it. The secular left has perfected the art of cancellation but again, in this world, even though we can say cancellation is happening where it's happening, no one is without blame. No one is perfect, and everyone shares some of this burden. So I just want to be clear, this happens all over the place, both sides of every aisle on any issue. Now, the problem is we all know we're right. Like, there's no question. Even in my mind, I, I was convicted this week, I was like, everybody thinks they're right. I'm the only one. <laughs> Even in my mind, I'm like, I know I'm right about all these key issues that people argue about. And, you know, come over to the house, let's have some hot dogs and some beer, and I'll tell you. <laughs> you know? But am I really right 100% of the time? Of course not. But what happens in a world where I'm convinced I'm right, and my ideals are based on solid principles, but the people who believe the opposite of me also believe they're right and that their ideas are based on solid principles. So what do we do? Well, we just fight it out. We just come to a stalemate. No one ever changes their mind. We just grow in our resentment and hatred of the other. Where is this going to take us? How dark is this going to get? Listen, if nothing happens to stem the tide or change the course of our culture's direction, if no one steps out and says, I'll make peace, going to take us to a very dark place. 
And so instead of just waiting around for people on the other side who don't agree with us to one day magically figure it out, they're just going to reread that email we sent six months ago. (laughs) They're going to watch that video again that we posted last year, and they're going to realize, my goodness, they've been right all along. Like, that's sort of our fantasy. It's never going to happen. And so for those who follow Jesus, when you read things like, blessed are the peacemakers, when you learn what it means, what he did on the cross and how he reconciled us to God by his own sacrifice, when you realize that Jesus never came here to be right over people, but that his real mission was to get right with people. And you realize what a different thing that is to be right over. If anybody had a license to do that, it was Jesus. He literally had the answers, but he didn't come to beat us over the head with answers. He came and laid down his own life. So for Christians, the question remains, Will we follow in his footsteps or will we dig in our heels and be right? So uh, as a way of, uh, of talking about this, I'm laying out a different point, a uh, different step in the peacemaking process every week. Last week, we talked about prayer. Prayer is absolutely the first step in any peacemaking process. Before you talk to all these people that disagree with you about your God, you talk to your God about all these people that disagree with you. <laughs> you take your frustration about them to God first before you take you know, all your frustration out on them. First step, absolutely the first step in peacemaking. I hope you've been doing that this week. The second step we're going to talk about today, and that's finding common ground with your cultural enemies or adversaries in these cultural battles that we find ourselves in. How do we find common ground? I think there's three steps in this process, and the first one's going to have to do with us stepping off of our soapboxes, and the second one's listening, listening to people. And the third one is claiming the common ground when we see it. I'm going to look at the Apostle Paul today, the greatest evangelist that the world's ever known. Um, Outside of Jesus himself, more people can trace their faith back to Paul than any other person. And so how did he do it? What was the secret? Paul was not a very engaging guy from a worldly standpoint. He wasn't attractive. He was bald and blind um, in his old age, at least. He he wasn't married with a perfect family. He didn't have 2.5 children in the picket fence. He, di- he didn't have any of that going on for him. He, didn't, he was single into his, uh, from his whole life, right? And, and so he just didn't have all the boxes you would check for the normal, like, televangelist, whatever, superstar. So how did he do it? Well, we're going to explore this um, today. The, the first thing that I see when I look at Paul is just a willingness to engage in the culture around him. He... Uh, often said things like, uh, let in, like he did in Colossians chapter 4. He said, let your conversation be always full of grace. Let your conversation be always full of grace, even with people who disagree, even with atheists who hate Christians. Let your conversation be full of grace. And in his most, most famous passage, right, 1 Corinthians 13, the one you hear at every wedding, love is patient, love is kind. Right before that, he says, I could speak in tongues of men or of angels. I could know all the stuff there is to know on earth and in heaven. But if I don't have love, I might as well be a noisy gong when I open my mouth. It's meaningless what I have to say. Because as the old adage says, no one will care how much you know until they know how much you care. You can have all the right answers and be a fool be alone and push people away from God. You can write someone right out the door of your home, right out the door of your church. You can write someone out of a relationship with God. If you're not careful, 
So Paul didn't set a model of having all the right answers. Now that stuff's important in studying and, and conversing and with Christians, iron sharpening iron. But when you're talking to people who are on the fringe of faith, people who have more questions than answers, people who think white Christian men are the problem, for example, what are you going to do? How are you going to respond? And so many of us take that opportunity to prove something. And I don't know who we're performing for sometimes. I look on social media and some of the stuff we say, I don't know who we're trying to impress when we're just trying to be right instead of trying to get right with people. Like, I don't know what we think we're accomplishing whenever we engage in spiteful arguments that just reinforce other people's preconceived notions of what a Christian is and how a Christian looks and talks and acts, right? I'm, I'm just saying this is an opportunity. This moment is an opportunistic moment for us to rethink how we engage online and in real life. I was thinking about my Twitter life this week, and I talk about Twitter a lot, but I don't really tweet that much. I tweet uh, 0.7 times a day, 0.7, not seven times, 0.7 times a day on average. I did the math. But do you know how many tweets I've written and never sent? You know, <laughs> I mean, for every one I send, I would probably write five others that never see the light of day. You know why? Because I read it before I send it, and I ask myself, is this doing anything to accomplish the mission of inspiring people to follow Jesus because that's why I'm here. And that's why you're here. And you're not here to defend the Republican Party or the Democratic Party or any pet cause of yours. You're not here to defend the Astros when Yankees fans call them the Asterisks. Or what, you're not here to, to get into those heated debates. You're here to inspire people to follow Jesus. And so everything you say in person or online should live up to that standard as much as possible. This is what Paul teaches me when I read about his missionary journeys. There's this one in Acts 17, at the book of Acts. It's a New Testament book, chapter 17. And Paul's in Athens, which is like the cultural center of the world at the time. And um, even though the Greek empire had been conquered by the Roman empire, Athens was still the place to be for art, philosophy, uh, academia, all this stuff. And so uh, Paul is wandering around Athens, waiting for some other friends to show up and meet him there. And while he's there alone, he notices idols everywhere. And Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, tells us Paul was distressed. He was disgusted by these idols. He didn't like what he saw, but he never berated any of the Athenians about the idols. When he engaged in conversations with Athenian thought leaders, he never said, you guys are going to hell, you guys are you're too many idols, all this stuff. He never engaged in that way. Instead, for, for days, day after day, in the marketplace, wherever he could, he engaged in one conversation after another. And he grew so popular, he was so endearing to the people of Athens that the thought leaders got wind of it. So the Epicureans, who were like the uh, elites who looked down their noses, kind of like the Sadducees in the Jewish world, if you know anything about first century Judaism. And then there were the Stoics, who were the more blue-collar, like everyman thinkers. And they were like the Pharisees in the Jewish world. And so they invited Paul to come debate. Come debate us, because we've heard what you're talking about. We don't agree with these, they call them foreign gods that Paul was talking about. They weren't really, Paul didn't say gods. He was preaching Jesus and his resurrection, but the word resurrection means anastasis, is, is anastasis in Greek. And they thought anastasis was a goddess. It was like Jesus and anastasis, these, this god and this goddess. And so they charged him with really the crime of proselytizing for foreign gods. And so they brought him in and they argued with him. They called him names. They called him a babbler. 
is the name in, in many of your Bibles that they call them in, in Acts 17. A babbler was a common insult. It was a term of derision to mean he was a fraud, a popularizer. He didn't really have his own thoughts. He was just popularizing other people's and not even that well. And yet when they insulted him, Paul didn't fight back. Has anyone ever insulted you? And you just, especially when your, your patience is worn thin right now, right? Just want to get back at him. Paul didn't never levied an insult in return. And, and, and it boded well for him. They invited him to come and speak at the Areopagus. Areopagus, it was, the, it was uh, like the Mars Hill is what you've heard it called. It was the, uh, it was the center, the civic center, the, 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 the place where all the ideas took shape as they debated them. And so Paul is there in the Areopagus, and he is being called these names. He's being charged with these crimes. He's not getting threatened. He is not returning the insults. Even when they say you're promoting all these foreign gods, Jesus and Anastasis, uh, he's like, I'm not even going to touch that one. He could have embarrassed them. He could have humiliated them because they were just wrong about that accusation, but he didn't do any of that. Instead, this is what he did. I want you to listen for the ways Paul found common ground with his adversaries in this conversation. So this is Acts chapter 17, um, and we'll start in verse 22. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. All right, what's he doing? In every way you guys are religious. He's complimenting them. I've been walking around, he says. I walked around and looked carefully at all your objects of worship. You guys are super devout. Hey, so am I. We have something in common. Isn't that great? That's where he starts. Not, you guys are pagans, idolaters, you're going to hell, Sodom and Gomorrah, da-da-da. Like, no, he's just like, hey, I'm religious too. This is great. That's where he starts. This is, this is just a master class. He says, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Now, this is true. You can Google this. It's still there. The altar with the inscription to an unknown God. And they did that because they were afraid. The Greeks were afraid of leaving a God out and offending some God they didn't know. And so they just put up this monument to an unknown God. Paul says, I noticed this monument to an unknown God. So you're ignorant of the thing that you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. And then he says, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. He is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. So Paul's saying, hey, you guys have inadvertently all this time been worshiping the same God I worship. That's brilliant. You guys, by this altar to an unknown God, we're like brothers now. I see you've been worshiping my God all along. Paul is finding this common ground. He's forging it and he's claiming it instead of just insulting these people who've insulted him. He continues, from one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out to him and find him, though he is not far away from any one of us. He's right there, y'all. He's right there for you if you want him. For in him we live and move and have our being. If you're reading at home, you probably see quotes around that. That's because Paul is quoting a famous poet from the Greek culture. He's quoting one of their poets to them. This would be like going to, I don't know, like uh, 
downtown Houston and walking around with the Bible in your hand quoting Beyonce or something. It's like, it's brilliant. It's like, it's like claiming uh, kinship. I've read your poets. I appreciate your poets. I've memorized your poets. And it fits. We all fit together here. And then he said, as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Another quote from a different poem. Isn't that brilliant? Therefore, he says, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being, God, is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by design or skill. He's like, how could something that made us have been made by us? Yeah. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. All right. What I love about Paul's approach is that it is truthful without being hateful. Paul listens with critical ears, but he speaks with an uncritical voice. He finds common ground. He is inclusive in his approach to them. He shows them that God already loves them, has made them, approves of them, wants them. If they will only have him, he can change their life. And what we know about this exchange um, at the end of Acts 17 is that there were several among them who believed what Paul said and became believers in Jesus Christ. And this was the seed that became the Greek Orthodox Church, really the whole Eastern Christian Church. And in the Greek Orthodox Church alone, there's 25 million people following Jesus today. And it all started with one conversation on one day in Athens that could have gone completely differently if Paul had said, you people are evil, repent or die. If Paul had said, I want nothing to do with you. I will not accept your invitation to speak with you. I am a great man of God. How would I sully myself? If Paul had sought to cancel them, like many of us would, with sinners such as those. Then it would have been a very different story. But Paul engaged. Paul stepped off of his soapbox, as many of us need to. He listened, and he found common ground and claimed it. It's beautiful. You don't see much of this anymore. I was revisiting some old video clips of one of the greats who really embodied this way of being. Uh, it was the late, great Billy Graham, who, thank God, we have videos of, I can go back and visit, because there hasn't been another Billy Graham since. And what I mean by that isn't just his skill in preaching. There's plenty of skillful preachers. There's plenty of great men and women following Jesus. But Billy Graham had a way of endearing the world to him, and even more important, endearing the world to Jesus. I found this one clip where Billy Graham accepted an invitation onto the Woody Allen show. I didn't even know Woody Allen had a talk show back in the day. This was in 1969. And when you watch the clip on YouTube, you'll hear them alluding to other times Billy Graham has been on the show. He was a regular guest on the Woody Allen show. Billy Graham in 1969, seven years after God got kicked out of schools and one year after one of the most tumultuous years in history. 1968 may be the closest thing to 2020 that we've had <laughs> in a long, long time. A lot of upheaval, a lot of disruption. Billy Graham went on the Woody Allen show, and instead of just bringing the hammer, bringing the fire and brimstone, he engaged Woody Allen and his audience in one of the most gracious interactions. Uh, one of the clips you're about to see, this, this is the only one I'll play for you all. The, the whole thing is on YouTube, but it, this, is, uh, this is Woody and, and uh, Billy Graham talking about uh, their experiences and differences, but it's also them taking 
audience questions. Y'all check this out and watch for the ways that Billy Graham finds common ground, even with the likes of Woody Allen. Do you remember the worst sin you ever committed? Uh, every sin is the same in God's sight. I mean, there is no such thing as a worse sin. Oh, really? I, if you wanted to find out which sin was the greatest, uh, I would choose, if I were forced to choose, mm -hmm. I would say idolatry, breaking the first commandment. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Really, that one bothers you the most? No, that doesn't bother me. That bothers the scriptures. It bothers God. Because all the way God was teaching Israel, all through the Old Testament, that there was one God, only one, that we're to serve and we're to worship. Right, and that doesn't seem to you as, say, an egomaniacal position. On God's part? On God's part. Oh, no, God is perfect. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's funny, when I look in the mirror in the morning, it's hard for me to believe that. <laughs> You know, in God's sight, you are beautiful. And, in, and everyone... <laughs> because, uh, because God loves all of us, and he has the hairs of our head numbered. He sees the sparrow fall. He's interested in every detail of your life. He made you like you are. He made you Woody Allen, and he expects you to live up uh, to a standard that he has made. And if you don't live up to it, then the Bible says you're falling short, and that's where you need God's help for redemption. Question? Would it use marijuana or drugs? Do I use drugs or marijuana? No, I'm I, I I'm not um, I don't use I don't smoke or drink or that's interesting because we're probably the same about this. I don't know about you. I, 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 I it's true. I, I advocate the um, the legalization of marijuana, but I don't approve of the use of it. Uh, but do, do you have any vices like that? Uh, yes, I, I drink coffee. And uh, I'm told that uh, now that there's going to be a great, a lot of publicity coming out that coffee's bad for you. I don't know, but uh, that's going to be hard for me to give up. You know, I may need your help. That's okay. <laughs> Maybe you can give me some ideas about how to give up coffee. Yes, if you will have faith in me, I will lead you. Have you seen any of Woody Allen's plays or movies? And what do you think of them? No, I have not. Uh, I have only read reviews, and uh, I would like to, though. And after meeting Woody, I think if you'll give me a free pass or a ticket, I might. <laughs> and, uh, if you come to one of my, one of my uh, movies or something, I'll go to one of your revival meetings. Well, now that is a deal. <laughs> yeah. That's just masterful. And when people say, I wonder when we'll have the next Billy Graham, that's what they miss. I get nostalgic looking at this clip. Um, I don't know if Woody Allen ever made it to a Billy Graham revival meeting. I know that Woody Allen's life took a different turn. Uh, I know that wasn't because of anything Billy Graham said in this interview. Um, I want to share that at the end of this interview, another audience member asked if, uh, if Woody thinks he would make a good minister. And everybody laughed, and Woody Allen shook his head and, and he sort of looked down at the floor. And Billy Graham said, I, I'd like to answer that one. The answer is yes. And everybody was shocked. Woody Allen make a great minister? He said, of course you'd make a great minister. God gave you this terrific mind, this ability to communicate and, and influence. Woody Allen, God could use you. I wonder if anybody had ever said that to him before, or if anybody since. And um, I wish I could tell you how many times 
I hear from people who just struggle to believe or are angry at the church because of some interaction they had with some Christian growing up or some Christian online. Listen, every moment is an opportunity. Every engagement with the world around you is, there's possibility there to go in either direction, really, good or bad, but especially right now. This uh, unprecedented season we're in, where everybody is uh, crying out for meaning and answers. Everybody is longing for something to hold on to, and they have tried politics and everything else, and nothing really gives them any relief. There's just more angst, anxiety, fear, and anger. Every engagement you have, every touch point with every person is an opportunity to share Jesus or just to share your own beliefs. And those aren't always the same thing, unfortunately. Every engagement is an opportunity to get down off your soapbox, to listen to other people and understand how they came to their beliefs, to be empathetic, humble, instead of just being right over people, to get right with people. The whole world is watching. What will our choice be? We're going to make a point. We're going to make peace. I pray this week you choose to make peace. You never know what kind of difference one conversation with one group of people can have. Would you pray with me? Lord, we stand convicted today. All of us are guilty of some kind of atrocities in this culture war we're in. We've been holier than thou. We've been judgmental, belittling been quick to cancel other people. We've been quick to judge other people without first repenting of our own sin. Forgive us, Lord. I know this is a moment ripe with opportunity. I pray you would send us out in person or online even to be peacemakers who seek first to get right with you and with other people instead of just to be right. We thank you, Jesus. For you came to make peace with us. We thank you for your sacrifice. And we pray in your name. Amen.